Welcome back to season two. We are so grateful for your continued support and for those new to the podcast. We look forward to sharing our getting dirty and growing strong stories with you. Where the Lotus Grows is an entirely listener-supported show. Supporting us is also designed to support you through keeping the growth flowing and also through rewards like guided meditations, personal affirmations, and extended behind-the-scenes content of our adventures in podcasting. Hop over and visit patreon.com backslash where the lotus grows and become a supporting member of the Creatitarian community. Where the lotus grows. Where the lotus grows. Creatitarians, getting dirty and growing strong. Hey, Courageitarians, we're so excited to share an interview today that Tim and I did with Marlisa Sullivan. Marlisa is a physiotherapist and yoga therapist with over 15 years of experience working with people suffering with chronic pain conditions. She's an assistant professor of yoga therapy and integrative health sciences at Maryland University of Integrative Health and holds an adjunct position at Emory University where she teaches the integration of yoga and mindfulness into physical therapy practices in the DPT program. She is co-editor of Yoga and Science and Pain Care, Treating the Person in Pain, as well as several peer-reviewed articles. She has an upcoming book titled Understanding Yoga Therapy, Applied Philosophy and Science for Wellbeing. Marlisa has been involved in the professionalization of the field of yoga therapy through the Educational Standards Committee of the IAYT, which helped to define the competencies for the field and in characterizing the yoga therapy workforce through research. Her research interests focus on defining the framework and explanatory model of yoga therapy based on philosophical and neurophysiological perspectives. We're so excited. Welcome, Marlisa. Welcome, Marlisa. It's so nice to have you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be talking to y'all. So I want to get right to it with my first question, because Kim and I have a lot that we really want to pack into this hour. I want to ask you about what led you on your path to yoga, yoga therapy, and yoga as science. Um, So what led me to um, my path to yoga, like as far as practicing yoga, was um, an interest in understanding how um, our beliefs about ourselves, um, our beliefs about spirituality impact our health and healing. So I started school studying medical anthropology and really looking at um, how to begin to learn about that idea. Um, I then became a physical therapist just through meeting different people, and I uh, worked in the field of physical therapy, and right away I met patients with whom it was so apparent that there was this psycho-emotional component, there was this component about um, how they were relating to themselves, as well as even their beliefs about their body or healing process impacted their recovery. So um, I I would say that I, I from the beginning, I had a little bit more of a yoga therapeutic perspective. Um, and so I was interested in looking at yoga philosophy and understanding it from a, a really broad base so that I could apply the spiritual and philosophical pieces of yoga to my patients. 
Nice. So did you, so you were a practitioner of yoga first and then that kind of fit into your, your profession? <laughs> kind yeah, of married yeah. them? Yeah, I, I would say when I studied uh, yoga, I, I began studying from a book like the, the Shivananda Companion to Yoga. Um, and I was looking for ways to understand um, a spiritual path um, and how I wanted to orient towards spirituality and meditation and philosophy. And so then in working with patients, I searched for different ways to bring this kind of work to their process of healing. That's wonderful. Did you have any specific mentors besides, you know, your traditional yoga lineage that um, you found along this path? Um, well, I would say, I, yeah, I had a, a lot of mentors. My very first yoga teacher was uh, this woman, Sue Hopkins from Georgia. And she was um, Iyengar and integrative yoga therapy. And because I was already a physical therapist, she would, you know, we would talk a lot about the therapeutic applications. So she was a mentor. I met Matthew Taylor early on in my career as a physical therapist, yoga therapist. And uh, we had a, a meeting at his house in Arizona where we talked about it. Um, so he was also a really uh, large mentor in that. Nice. We value them and feel like they're so important. It's so important to have that acknowledgement on our path. So your newest book is Yoga and Science in Pain Care, Treating the Person in Pain. Um, and Kim, you have some specific questions related to the book, right? I do. So I'm wondering, can you share your Getting Dirty and Growing Strong story that led you to publishing this book, Yoga and Science of Pain Care? Um, so I'm not, um, I, I guess the way that I would speak to that is just the, the writing process in general. And, um, for me, a lot of the, well, I guess I'm, um, I guess there's two pieces of that, that kind of led to the writing of the book. One is the more academic intellectual piece of it, which was, um, looking at, I really wanted to help bring out into the world the multi-layered expression of pain and how yoga therapy can address all these different layers. So actually, when um, I was first approached to write a book on pain, I immediately thought, well, that wasn't really a book that I wanted to write by myself. I wanted to um, collaborate with others. So I talked to Shelley Prosco and Neil Pearson, the other two editors, um, and we all talked together about what we thought a book on pain would be. So rather than just giving like this one person expertise, we decided to create a collaboration and really talk about it as far as like the uh, biopsychosocial spiritual model or the kosha model. So the book is oriented in that way. As far as like a, a getting down and dirty piece of it, the more emotional piece of writing, I think um, has to do with um, the confidence and the assurity that what you have to say is meaningful and is novel and is interesting. Um, I think during the process of writing, um, I found many times where I doubted, like, is this something interesting? Will people care? Is this something that is meaningful to the world? Um, and being able to do um, have other people read your writing and your thoughts and see how they reflect it back to you um, has been a real learning process. To me, it was very much of a like practice of the Bhagavad Gita of doing the work and then surrendering to what arises or what emerges from that work. 
Well, I had three favorite chapters. Um, My favorite chapters were chapter four, yoga and yoga therapy, chapter six, the polyvagal theory and the gunas, and chapter seven, integrating pain science education, movement, and yoga. And I'm wondering if you had a favorite chapter. Um, Yeah, I have, well, I have a couple. Um, I I can't remember what the chapter's called. I have to go find it. But uh, Lori uh, Rubenstein-Fazio writes a, a really amazing chapter on understanding um, movement and particularly the power of visualization and imagery in being care. Um, I think that her voice as a writer was just so uh, rich and engaging um, and it, it just so clearly you can understand how this applies to different clinical populations. So that one was definitely one of my favorite. Um, I also, like you said, that pain education chapter by Neil, um, yes. just that comparison between the pain education principles and yana yoga and this real understanding that we already have within the yoga compendium all of these ways to address the recent research one of my continual um like things i get excited about is whenever we can really see this bridging of the ancient wisdom with current findings so i try to always like in that polyvagal chapter i try to always speak to this idea that we're not trying to parallel them because that can diminish both, but rather what we're trying to do is demonstrate how um, there's this real value in seeing how the wisdom tradition, how the philosophy and how the practices are reflected in current neuroscientific knowledge. And I think they benefit one another so that understanding some of that neuroscientific evidence allows you to apply the yoga in more efficient ways. Um, but then understanding the yoga perspectives allows a whole broader context and a way of working with people. Um, I also, I felt like I also really enjoyed the chapter on um, compassion that Shelley wrote. And, um, you know, my, I really liked my eudaimonia <laughs> and spiritual chapter. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that leads me to my next question for our Cragetarians. Can you tell them what eudaimonia is? why you're passionate about it, and why does it really matter that we learn eudaimonia? Yeah, because I am very passionate about it, and I, <laughs> and, and I do think it's really important. Um, so eudaimonia, eudaimonia comes, it's either pronounced eudaimonia or eudaimonia. You'll hear it both ways. Okay. Um, but um, from what I hear, it's more correct to say eudaimonia. Um, oh. But, you know. Sometimes I say it the other way. So uh, eudaimonia comes from Aristotle, and it's about living a well-lived, well-purposed life. So it's when we've reached the pinnacle expression of what it is to be a human being. And for him, that meant that you were living in alignment with the uh, virtue ethics, with values. So he had this practice where you would take any of the values And you would say, um, here's the excess, here's the deficiency, and here's the middle. So like for humility, the excess of humility is not having confidence and not taking up for yourself. A deficiency in humility is being a narcissist. And you would explore what is the middle of those two and how do I work towards the middle. So it's a very like subjective, ethical inquiry personal, reflective, and contemplative process, not like an externally driven right and wrong, but you would find that and you would live in alignment with that. 
so that's just like the background of what eudaimonia is. Um, the reason that I think it's so important is that it provides us with a way of speaking to people about spirituality in a secular manner. So in my life, that has been really important because in working with clients, um, I've had many clients who were interested in yoga, who were interested in meditation, but they were really concerned about the religious aspects of it. Um, and so being able to find ways to speak to them um, where I didn't have to bring Sanskrit language, I didn't have to bring anything uh, um, outside of them into the conversation, but by understanding that eudaimonia is about this, um, and just to segue a little bit, eudaimonic well-being is what research today uses um, to measure uh, eudaimonia, and it's made of these constructs, including meaning and purpose. So being able to have things like talking about meaning and purpose, talking about values, talking about um, how they connect to others, how they connect to themselves. Um, so it's really helped me to develop the language to talk about spirituality in a way that people can resonate with, they can not feel threatened by. Um, so that's why I think it's important for us to use. I've used that language in talking to medical professionals as well as clients, and it just really provides this bridge. The other thing that eudaimonic well-being has is it has this rich body of research about the mental and physical health effects. So we can help people cognitively get behind working with meaning and purpose and values and interconnectedness and social relationships um, by, by helping them to understand and see the body of research that supports this. And I think when we as yoga therapists look at the practices within that philosophical context of dharma, of personal connectedness, connection with others, uh, yamas and niyamas, then we're applying the practices within their philosophical context rather than trying to say, oh, here's an asana for back pain, here's a breath for mood regulation. Um, so, uh, uh, sorry if I'm jumping around. So Ananda, <laughs> Dr. Ananda talks about this in terms of um, yogapathy versus yoga therapy. Like when we apply a yoga practice to a condition, like we're applying it to a specific pathology, that's fine. However, it's different than yoga therapy, which really seeks to look at the whole person, help them delve into things like meaning and purpose and values, helping them to find that interpersonal connection and greater connection to others. And then we apply asana, pranayama, and meditation towards that. Thank I love you. that. Yes. I love that a lot. Um, I find that in working with clients myself, that, that just, even if they come to you with something like low back pain that you're able to present in this manner, um, that allows them to kind of walk away seeing that the practice is so much richer than just um, I'm walking away with, you know, my back hurts less. <laughs> yeah, and so I, much I, more. I think, you know, we don't need to use the word eudaimonia with our clients. However, mm -hmm. understanding what it means and the real health effects that have been found from it allows us to speak to our clients and other healthcare professionals from that perspective. Yes. In your opinion, why do you think polyvagal theory is at the center of the healing process? Um, so one of the things that I love about polyvagal theory is that it 
Um, one of the cool things about scientific theories in general is when they are saying something and you're like, oh, well, yeah, I knew that. And so it's something like explaining something that you kind of new in your work with yourself or your work with others. So one of the really profound things about polyvagal theory is it talks about how our underlying autonomic platform gives rise to physiological, psychological, and behavioral states. So in the very in, in, in the easiest to understand way, when our fight or flight response is activated, we're gonna have physiological mobilization of our cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, um, immune and inflammatory systems, all systems of our body. So our physio physiological state is impacted by that mobilization of the autonomic nervous system. In addition, the emotions and behaviors we have are going to be oriented towards finding safety from perceived danger. So that could be anger, worry, fear, anxiety, any of those kinds of things. Um, so what polyvagal helps us to do in, in much this in a similar way to eudaimonia and yoga is to, instead of getting caught up with, here's the physical symptom, here's the psychological symptom, here's the behavioral symptom, let's look underneath and to affect what's underlying all three of those so we create synchronistic change. If you take someone in the middle of this sympathetic response and you try to do a compassion meditation or some kind of imagery of peace and ease, it's much less likely to work than if you help them find a relaxed autonomic state um, and then they can access those moods and those behaviors uh, more easily. Can you talk how the gunas play into the polyvagal theory? Yeah, so one of the things I had the opportunity to do was work with Dr. Porges, who um, is just simply an amazing person and really like lives his theory, which is a wonderful thing to see. Um, and he, um, oh, you asked me about mentors, he would definitely be there. Um, and so in the, in the gunas, um, um, so, sorry, my computer. Um, okay, so with the, with the gunas, um, what, what we were trying to do is, first of all, look at this idea that both yoga and polyvagal theory talk about an underlying platform. So in polyvagal theory, it's a neural platform, but in yoga, we talk about these three qualities, these three gunas that underlie physical state, bodily state, uh, psychological state, thoughts, emotions, cognitions, but even the environment, the, the, the trees, the sky, all of those things. So, poly, so the gunas are, are much bigger, um, but, and polyvagal theory is, is really the autonomic nervous system. Um, but so the, what um, yoga teaches us is that when anything that we look at is um, a result of some proportion of these gunas. So if we take our uh, physiological state, the state of activation I'm in, activation is rajaguna. So I can look at how much rajaguna I have, how much activation, how much clarity and luminosity or sattvaguna, or how much uh, stillness, groundedness, or tamaguna I have. Um, so we can look at these three qualities in different proportions and how they manifest in physical state, psychological, emotional state, and even in the state of our environment around us. Um, so much like um, that idea in polyvagal theory, and again, not trying to parallel them, but more, I'd like to use the word reflecting. So um, we could say that the sympathetic nervous system, when it's activated, is reflected in an increase in rajaguna. 
or vice versa. When Raja Guna is predominant from a yoga perspective, um, that's reflected by an increase in the sympathetic nervous system. So there's there's a way that Raja Guna and the sympathetic nervous system are reflective of one another, um, of the social engagement neural platform, um, and Satvaguna, where when we're in Satvaguna, that we're more likely to activate the social engagement platform with homeostatic physiological states and more uh, calm or positive or pro-social behavioral and psychological states. And then um, with the dorsal vagal complex and tamaguna that they reflect in one another. The other things these two theories offer is that it's not like that these systems work in isolation. So Stephen talks about, Dr. Porges talks about safe mobilization and safe immobilization. Um, which is when there's this co-engagement of the social engagement and um, sympathetic. So that when we're doing things like dance or play, we're mobilized, we're in a sympathetic state, but we still feel safe. So it hasn't been, it hasn't overwhelmed their system. Um, and in the same way, yoga speaks to this idea of there can be, uh, when Rajaguna is, is engaged in balance with Sattvaguna and Tamaguna, we simply have the activation for um, motivation, inspiration, creativity, and those kinds of things. I feel like I was talking a long time, so I want to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. I think okay. it's really important to, um, because I think for our listeners especially, um, it's really important to really link how that all works, like what that means. And I feel like you, you really have summarized it there. Um, Kim and I were kind of discussing like balancing, like what is that, what does that mean to balance the gunas? So I think from a, from a neural platform, it's kind of, you know, you're, you're either in a state of fight or flight or you're in a state of, and, and, and like you explained, it can be like you can be dancing and be relaxed or not in fear or not stressed, but still active. What does that look like, like in the gunas? Does it um, like how does the balance? What does that look like? Yeah. So in the same in a similar way, like um, when we have rajaguna, which is that quality of activation or tamaguna, which is that quality of stillness. Um, when they're balanced with the other two gunas, we are able to act in the world in a way that is in harmony with our inner and outer world. We're able to be grounded and solid and have a foundation and be stable. When Rajas overwhelms the other two gunas, we have things like anger or anxiety or worry. When Tamaguna overwhelms the other two gunas, we might have things like depression or extreme lethargy or extreme fatigue. So um, if someone is, ex is exhibiting a lot of Tamaguna, you might do a practice that was actually more enlivening or engaging um, in order to bring their energy up. I'm wondering, and this was out of um, Matthew Tyler's uh, uh, chapter, but I, I thought maybe you could enlighten us a little bit. He talked about consciousness and pain theories, and I'm wondering if you can um, describe how understanding that is the bridge to the yoga perspective uh, regarding pain. I would have to look at 
what he was referring to in that chapter. Can you? Yeah. Um, so he had a table and he was talking about the history mm-hmm. of, of consciousness and theories. And I'm kind of perusing through my book right now so I can look at that. Oh, that's that one. Mm-hmm. So part of his chapter also helps us to understand the history of how um, we've looked at not just pain, but even any kind of medical condition. So there's ways that, um, you know, we've looked at it in history, much more biomedical, allopathic, from a pathogenic perspective, versus much more interrelated perspectives like integrative health or the biopsychosocial spiritual, um, which yoga is really um, a great example of. Um, even that idea of uh, some um, the term pathogenesis is is those uh, treatments or interventions that are geared towards finding the cause of pathology, which a lot of our allopathic medicine is. They find the cause of you know uh, why your hip hurts, and then they go in and they do surgery to change something inside. So they're trying to find a specific thing, versus the more salutogenic perspectives, which are looking at how to optimize health and wellness, how to move um, past trying to find an organic cause, a specific organic cause, to understanding how all of the systems are interrelating with one another. And really, it's not just the biopsychosocial spiritual, but that extends into our environment, our family, our occupation, how all of these spheres are influencing us. So if you take someone with pain and you were to just work with this physical layer of pain, um, that's going to have very limited effects uh, versus if you were to explore with them and uncover the way that they relate to their family, the way they relate to others, the way they relate to their body, um, and you help them uncover all of those inner relationships of stimuli. You did perfect. Okay. You, pretty much, you pretty much said the whole chart. Yes, absolutely nailed it. Um, another question I had was um, in, in Neil um, Pearson's uh, chapter, when he was talking about genre yoga is considered as a treatment approach, that there's a caution mentioned. And the caution mentioned was acquiring knowledge without putting it into practice leads to arrogance and a false sense of spiritual pride. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. I feel like I'm on a pop quiz with my book. <laughs> Do you remember? Well, sometimes people come to yoga and they think that there's, I know, I'm just kidding. You know, there's no participation, but there is actually a participation. Yeah, right? there is. And, and I think, you know, um, there's different words that are used, even like the idea of spiritual bypassing, um, you know, where people can, um, people can read all of the yogic texts and be able to, uh, word word for word tell you exactly what it said however they haven't put it into practice so that um, they don't know what it means to actually live it and all of the difficulties that come with it so one example that I that I just thought of with that was you know the uh, the practice of ahimsa and non-harming and people will speak to this idea of how um, 
how do you practice ahimsa as well as satya and truthfulness at the same time? So sometimes in the name of, um, uh, actually it would go the other way, sorry, but in the name of truthfulness, people harm other people because they say, oh, I'm just being honest, I'm just being truthful. However, if you're practicing truthfulness without ahimsa, then you're not understanding the nuance that comes. And actually what's really um, interesting is, um, so I have a, a second book coming out. It's called Understanding Yoga Therapy. And in that, I go into a lot more of the stories of the Mahabharata. Um, and in the Mahabharata, there is a continual teaching that um, philosophy such, of, such as Dharma is meaningless outside of applying it in the practical world. So Arjuna, who's, who's you know this warrior, right at the beginning of the battle, all of a sudden he looks out on the field and he sees these people that he's loved, these teachers, these um, cousins, all of these people, and all of a sudden he's not sure, like, which is the right thing to do? Am I supposed to fight or not fight? And so it's only when we're confronted with life situations that we really get to apply and understand the philosophy. And so it can lead to this idea of arrogance if you think you know the philosophy just because you can quote the verse, but you don't understand the nuance of how do I apply that in this situation. Um, and so just to bring in this other philosopher that I, I love to bring in is Viktor Frankl, who also spoke about meaning and purpose needed to be understood in context to our life situation and our world. So that um, there is this teaching actually like throughout time um, from yoga, Aristotle, Viktor Frankl, that really speaks to this idea that the intellectualization of knowledge is meaningless. And it's really when we have the opportunity to confront what the meaning is in a specific moment that we understand what that philosophy means. Wow. I have goosebumps with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I really... Um... I really like that a lot. <laughs> and you have a background in uh, physical uh, therapy as well as yoga therapy. And so when we're talking about educating um, people on pain, there was a moment in the book when um, there was a discussion about um, when education is provided without reference to anatomy or a focus on the emotional and behavior aspects of pain, um, it doesn't hold or doesn't resonate in the client as much. And can you talk about why this is a key aspect of the education and pain, pain care? Yeah, I think it's really easy. Like some of the education in pain care can become very clinical and cold. Um, and so the person in pain is having an experience that is made up of what's happening in their physical body, what's happening in their emotions, what's happening in the world around them, in their relationships, in their, in their occupation. And so the moment we um, dismiss those aspects of it, we, the patient can feel unheard, they can feel unseen, they can shut down, um, they can... Uh, so they so they're no longer able to really like dive in and be open to the experience that you're going to help them explore. So we've talked a lot about yoga philosophy, and I'm wondering, what do you do for self care? Um, well, I um, I do I meditate. 
Um, I also go for walks in nature. I find nature to be really, especially, you know, trees and forests. Um, so I, I find different ways to um, uh, help me to connect to uh, my own self, to the world around me, um, to um, continuously, like in, in writing the book, I found that um, it was so easy to get so much in my head and into all the cognitive intellectual stuff that I um, had a real disconnect with my body and even my life um, because I could get so narrow focused on the writing that I would forget almost how to connect to other people or how to um, do the work that I was doing at the university or anything else. So, um, you know, continuing to really um, make time for that like somatic um, connection with what is needed in the moment, um, as well as doing specific things like, you know, going for walks or listening to music. Nice. I like that that kind of circles back to the living it and practicing it and doing it that you had that experience of being so wrapped up in the intellectual part of it to to take that time to to kind of make sure that you got that in. Yeah, I would. Um, I laughed with a few of my friends because like <laughs> I would be writing for hours and hours and I would get so absorbed in it and then I would go see them for coffee and I would almost forget like how to talk, you know, like <laughs> what it's like to have conversation. Um, so it really, and it also, you know, I, I, I feel a lot happier when I'm connecting with others. And so to realize that um, it's really important for me in my life to, you know, do the intellectual thing, but to make time for um, personal connection, whether that's with friends or clients or whatever. So what have you learned about yoga therapy in your lifetime that um, you'd want to share with a younger generation of yoga therapists? Um, that the philosophy of yoga is incredibly powerful and uh, timeless. Um, and that, you know, when you can find a way to study it that resonates with you so that once you begin to contemplate it for yourself, you can easily bring it into your work with others. So, you know, for me, the aspects of the philosophy that have been most resonant has been the more non-dualist approaches, um, has been reading the Mahabharata and reading the Bhagavad Gita, um, and has been the philosophy of Dharma and meaning and purpose and, and um, those kinds of things. So, you know, finding those pieces of the philosophy that really have made a difference in my life that I can bring to others in a way that's not just the way I practiced it, but really getting to explore with people how these philosophies become enlivened for them. Um, so, so I think it's really finding the ways that you can resonate with the philosophy um, and that you can both practice it for yourself and bring it into other people's lives. That's beautifully said, because I think with um, yoga therapy being a new profession, sometimes it's difficult to find your place um, yeah. in that profession. Yeah. Yeah. Just, and just to add on to what, you know, what you're saying is, you know, really finding the people it is that you're best called to serve. Like, so for me, because of my 
background in a physical as a physical therapist, um, I am better. I can better help people that usually stem from a physical pain, even though all these other aspects are things that I address. Um, but when I have someone who's referred to me who has more severe mental illness, I um, typically refer them to a different yoga therapist that has more of that background and more of that focus. Um, and, you know, so I, there have been a couple that I've worked with where I worked side by side with a psychiatrist or a psychologist so that um, it was really like a, a co-treatment or a co-intervention. So really, you know, but, but in general, like finding those clients that you can best serve and serving those kind of in that vein of the Bhagavad Gita, um, doing the work that is yours. I like that a lot. I feel like that ties into, and um, Kim, I'm sorry, I think we're getting kind of close, um, into like our uh, platform of the podcast is kind of the getting dirty um, to grow strong or the idea of doing the work. And just, I, I feel like that ties into like finding what your, where your place is. Um, last question that I have for you is kind of what does getting dirty or doing the work look like to you? Um, so to me, it looks like there's a couple of ways that came into my mind to answer that. So I'm trying to choose which way to go. Um, so I'm just going to start here. Um, it, one of um, so I, I've done a lot of study with Richard Miller, and one of the things that he um, has really emphasized to me is always finding uh, both colleagues and mentors and teachers. So um, you know, I think a lot of times people talk about how this work can become isolating. Like there's many people where they're the only yoga therapist in the community or in the faci facility or the setting. So I think reaching out to others um, and to really get you know, feedback, not only on what you're doing as a yoga therapist from a methodology perspective, but also um, because yoga therapy, one of the differences between yoga therapy and physical therapy is, you know, like you don't have to like live physical therapy to be a physical therapist. Um, however, like as a yoga therapist, we're really embodying these teachings and this philosophy. So I think having your own way that you're with friends as well as with mentors, um, I, I have like about, I have a few friends that we talk once a week or once a month, um, as well as studying with Richard Miller, where I have the opportunity to say, this is what's coming up for me in my life and my practice. And I'm not sure how to use um, what I know from the philosophy of yoga in this instance. Um, so that you're not just like getting feedback from people from, oh, should I have done bridge or uh, fish posture? But you're getting feedback about um, how it is that you're going through life embodying these uh, philosophies, how you're living them, how you're knowing them. So, you know, like these are texts that you can read thousands of times over your entire lifetime. And every time you read them, they'll mean something different. So exploring in that moment, you know, in, in each moment, what are the philosophies that are most calling to me? What is most needed in my life? Um, how do I um, how do I explore that in this moment and having ways that you do that in your personal practice, but that you also get that reflected to you by both peers, colleagues and teachers. 
Yes. So I'm wondering, like, when are you going to start your office hours or coaching on that? <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe after my research projects, I want to do. <laughs> um, you know, I, I read somewhere in your work that when you were talking about integrative uh, care, that it's, it's kind of like we're all trying to put Humpty uh, back together again. And I'm wondering, how do you envision a new healthcare system that incorporates yoga therapy? Could you tell us like what your dream or your vision yeah. would be, what that would look like? I, yeah, I love how you asked that. I wasn't sure where you were going at first, but I really like where it ended. Um, so I, um, like, so what I envision is that um, yoga therapists will be integrated into settings across a continuum of care, whether it's acute care, long-term care, psychiatric care, whatever, and that the the referrals to yoga therapists will be made to um, meet goals such as, um, how do I want to say this? Um, maybe that's too narrow of a way to put it. Um, so let me, I'm going to start this way. Um, so at, at Howard County Hospital here in Maryland, the students go to the hospital, they work with people bedside. So while the, you know, the medical, the other like allopathic medical professionals, allied medical professionals have their own goals, um, the yoga therapist can come in and work with things like stress, fatigue, um, relaxation, uh, mood, depression, anxiety. And then those things, like improving those components, have a meaningful relationship to the amount of inflammation, the immune processes, and all of those other concerns, blood pressure and those. Um, but that, you know, even with this idea of meaning and purpose and eudaimonic well-being, there's research that really shows its effect on inflammation and the immune system and physical and mental health and pain. So that yoga therapists will be utilized to um, help the person find peace, ease, equanimity, um, meaning and purpose, quality of life, um, fatigue, sleep, stress, and those things, um, as well as improving physical function. So, you know, or building on that. So whereas, you know, PTs and, and OTs will work with physical function in their ways, uh, yoga therapy can complement that um, as well. So I see them, for me, I would like to see them working side by side and that um, that the health field will place as much importance on these components that we know impacts every disease condition so that, you know, the things like fatigue, sleep, development of peace and ease, all of those things um, are seen as, as for what they are, as uh, incredibly important components for blood pressure regulation, for heart disease, for digestive difficulties, um, and that they're referred for every patient that has any medical condition for that. I love the idea of that um, full integration. I feel like there's um, so many opportunities for, for yoga therapy to, to fit in in that way. Yeah, and you see it happening a little bit in cancer care and in pain mm -hmm. care. Um, and so to keep like building on that and having both insurers and policymakers and the medical field um, really understand the positive impact on healing and recovery that those things have. Well, and I think in those settings too, the, the opportunity to study that is also like right, kind of right there in, 
front of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in in like acute care or settings or hospital setting, cancer care settings, the opportunity yeah. to to really see the difference and value it. Yeah. Is there. Well, we really, really appreciate um, you taking the time to speak with us today. What, just for our listeners, when, what is the new book and when does that projected to come out? So my new book is called Understanding Yoga Therapy, Applied Philosophy and Science for Wellbeing. It's supposed to come out, it's um, the publisher's Rutledge, and it's supposed to come out in end of April or probably May. Um, and it'll be available on Amazon, and it is, the first third of it is really about the application of the philosophy, including some stories from the Mahabharata, and using a lot of the text, but talking about clinical application of the text. Um, the second half is more the scientific piece of eudaimonia and polyvagal theory, and the practices, the practical part, I divided into practices for regulation, for interoception, and for resilience. Wow, that's really exciting. I know, yeah. it's really exciting. Hopefully we can have you back and talk about that. Yeah, I just saw the covers, <laughs> so I'm very excited. Very exciting. It's actually on Amazon is... right now. You can pre-order it. Oh, oh, all right. Nice. I, I pre-ordered the last book, and I'll pre-order this one coming, <laughs> too. Uh, I had for, actually forgotten that I had pre-ordered um, the book that we spoke about today, and uh, I was so surprised when it was in my mailbox. It was that's a sweet. really great day when that came. That's a nice present. But uh, yeah, wasn't it? Uh, but, you know, I just want to say my heart is always um, grateful when I get to spend time uh, talking with you. And I really appreciate you sharing openly and sharing your gifts with me so that I can grow as well. Thank you. Thank you. I really yes. appreciate getting to be here and to talk to y'all. This is really fun. Thank you so, so much. We can, um, where there are other places can you be found as far as? Um, um, I'm doing a new website. Um, that's marlisasullivan.com and the name of my new book. Um, and then I'm on Facebook. I'm kind of on Instagram, but I, I don't understand Instagram yet. So <laughs> you'll get there. Okay. You'll get there. Thank you so much, Marlisa. We, I really, really appreciate you've always been uh, open and available to both of us. And we really appreciate you coming on and we want to talk to you when the new book drops. Okay. That'd be great. Thank you so much. This is really you so great. much. Thank you for being part of the Courageitarian community. We're so grateful for the reviews you've written, the member support, and all of the notes that you send us through social media. You can find the show notes at wherethelotusgrows.com. Our member platform is patreon.com wherethelotusgrows. You can donate to the show and get rewards for your support. This is really the best way to keep the episodes rolling. Also, come hang out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or subscribe to our mailing list. Thank you, and we'll see you back here next week. Remember, though we are professionals in our field, the topics discussed and or advice given is general information and not intended as a treatment or diagnosis. Please seek the guidance of a medical, integrative health, bodywork, or yoga therapy professional for a full evaluation.